This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, self-development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, Blue Fish. Okay, that's this genius. One has a little star. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. One of the joys of doing uh, journalism is being able to work with a journalist like Peter Kafka. Um, he is a must-have. He is a must-keep. He is someone that was critical to uh, the deal we just did. Um, he's a journalist journalist. He gives insight. He drives people crazy. Um, and he's super grumpy, which is, um, and makes me look sweet. Um, but he really is tremendous, and we've given him a media conference. We want to do, Peter and I uh, want to do so much more and really impact journalism online and keep it to the quality levels that we, um, we think it deserves to be. And so we want to really shine a light on him, and so we've decided to give him a great interview with um, the founders of BuzzFeed, and he's going to, to talk about where content is going. And... Uh, and he, ha- he himself has all these great insights, and this should be a really interesting interview. Without further ado, Peter Kafka. Must keep. Ah, That's great. Ah, ah. Oh, nice. I'm psyched to learn that I'm a must keep. That's good news. Um, I had to change my intro for this panel. I was going to say, uh, I'm going to interview the most interesting digital publishing company. Um, now I've got to say, two of the guys who run one of the most interesting digital publishing companies. Can you guys please uh, say hello to Jonah Peretti and Ben Smith? Grab those two over there. I'll, I'll sit here. No, I pull this one. I want. You sit where you want. What's it like to work at a really big digital publishing company? Do you have any tips for me? Uh, you know, once it gets past 200 people, it's, uh, everything changes and it's just Better? miserable. Oh. <laughs> so you, you, we're going to have some scale now at Recode. We're psyched about that. You guys have scale. You have 200 million unique users, right? That's the last number you've put out. Um, and Jonah, we had a conversation about this at South by Southwest, but I want to expand on that a bit. Um, you said 200 million unique users is great, but we really think we have a bigger audience and we're, we're less concerned now with getting people to come to our website. We're going to go bring all of our media, all of our stuff to Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. I don't know if you said Snapchat or not. 
Um, so can you just briefly explain why you want to sort of move from this website that most people in this audience, most people in the world would be very happy to have and say we, we want a bigger reach? Yeah, so we, we um, it somewhat was somewhat accidental. So um, we were hopeful when we, when we bought Zay Frank's company that he would build a big video business. Um, but he, he was in a little office in Culver City with three other people. Um, and over the last two and a half years, he's built something that is really huge and, and material to, to our overall business. Um, BuzzFeed Motion Pictures does over 1.2 billion video views each month. And that's all original video that we make in our, in our studio. That happens where? People watch those videos where? Um, where do people watch them? So, so we started by trying to put the videos on BuzzFeed. And it worked OK, but not great. And people would come to BuzzFeed.com, and they would click or come to our app, and they would, say, and they, we would get comments like, um, why wasn't this a list? I was expecting a list, or you know, a quiz, or I don't have headphones on, and, and I'm, I'm at work, and I can't watch this. So Zay, being very enterprising, started putting them on other platforms. And now we're on 20 different platforms. Um, Facebook um, video has been huge for us. YouTube was our, our first partner and still uh, probably our most important video partner. Um, and the video views are happening across all, all these different but, platforms. But basically, you said, I think, what, 90% of those views are happening outside of BuzzFeed? Uh, almost all of the views. All, almost all of them. Yeah. And, and the major, I think the biggest number is YouTube and then, and then Facebook. Yeah. And so that's the model now you think you can do with all of your content. Yeah, so then we started looking at, oh, okay, if we can make content, great content and we get data back about how consumers are, are using the content and, 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 and we can see the content has an important role in people's lives and it's having an impact, then it doesn't matter whether it appears on BuzzFeed or whether it appears in BuzzFeed's app, whether it appears on YouTube or Facebook or, or other platforms. And so we started to do that across all of, of, um, of BuzzFeed. And BuzzFeed's site now is, um, you, you know, we're not think, we think that it's one of many places we publish. So I want to talk about the, the business components of that in a, in a, in a minute. But, but Ben, you're the guy who makes all the stuff, or you're in charge of making all the stuff on the site. Um, and you, you're a digital journalist, but you're still a sort of very traditional journalist. So how do you think about making stuff that's not going to be consumed on your property? Does that change the way you think about what you make, how you make it, when you make it? Well, I think actually beat reporters have been doing this you know, probably longer than most, in that I, you, you spend a lot of your time on Twitter. I spend more of my time on Twitter, possibly. You know, we should spend putting less. Our, putting, <laughs> our, putting our content out on somebody else's platform. And it feels very, very natural. And it obviously you know, makes, makes us stronger reporters in some ways, gets us more scoops, gets, you know, is, sort of is where you put the, the incremental stories that then sometimes make a big Well, we tell ourselves, the right, that it's good for our brand or our publisher's brand. But we, traditionally, we say, all right, but well, we want you to come read the story on our site where we make our money and that's where, that's where you know, we'll get the most benefit if you, we don't want to publish yeah, I mean, our scoop on Twitter, we want to publish it on our I site. I mean, I think, I think that what I, the way I think about this is that, I mean, I think this has been true for a while, there's certain stories that really belong. There's some stories where you do need to, you know, write a couple thousand words and really explain what's going on and there's some stories that you do not. I mean, there are certain kinds of tech acquisitions where, you know, a sentence is enough, leadership fights on Capitol Hill, no one who is not in that little Twitter audience cares, but they're also very, very important stories. So you were doing this sort of before you got to BuzzFeed, right? You were publishing scoops on Twitter and then publishing them on your site? Yeah, and I think part of the reason I came to BuzzFeed was, which, you know, at the time was like, it was this cat site and it was very confusing to people, was that they'd been thinking about, you know, how, with what they'd really spent all their time thinking about was a reader who was going primarily to Facebook, but also to other platforms first and not worrying so much about your homepage. And I had started to feel about uh, the homepage, like, oh, got to feed the beast. 
the way I used to feel about you know the New York Daily News page 17. We lost an ad, got to blow the layer into this thing. Kind so, of stuff. You said when you came to, to BuzzFeed, it was a cat site, and, and you guys get very bristly when people say a, we do not get bristly. It was a great cat site. When you say when people talk about BuzzFeed today as a cat site or a listicle site, and you say it, no, we do all this great journalism. It's true, but but can you guys talk about sort of how you why you brought Ben to Buzz at the time? You were a, a well-known uh, writer, at least in digital circles and in DC circles. You're in Politico. How did that conversation start? Why did you want to bring in a real journalist to BuzzFeed? Uh, the main thing was the social web had evolved. We, BuzzFeed started as a little lab. We were based in New York's Chinatown. We had um, you know, a team of five or six people. We were testing ideas in media, trying to understand how do ideas spread. Um, these ideas like six degrees of separation in small worlds were intellectual curiosities in the 1970s. This is stuff you were doing while you were still at HuffPo, right? Or you had left HuffPo? Um, this, this was in parallel with HuffPo. So HuffPost was a, a company and was being run like a company, and then BuzzFeed was this little lab where I could Just for context, you were a co-founder of, of Huffington Post. You built up a very big site there and then said, I want yeah, to play yeah. all the new thing. Um, and, and, and before that was, was doing kind of my own little projects, often with my sister, trying to understand how media spreads. And so that's really what, what BuzzFeed started as. And at that time, Facebook didn't have news on it. Twitter was where, what you had for lunch, and people would joke about it, and, and people forget that. Now Twitter is one of the you know, largest news services, and everyone in media is obsessed with Twitter and is on Twitter all day. People didn't realize that there wasn't really news on Twitter or reporting on Twitter. And so the social web evolved, and all of a sudden we said, oh my god, we have this opportunity to do reporting and have some distribution for it that isn't search, and that isn't a front page, and that was really what was driving HuffPost's traffic at the time. Um, it means that our, this model of leaning into social is, it, you know, it now allows us to do news. And we don't have anyone who knows how to do news. We don't have any reporters on staff. We have a bunch of, of web-savvy, you know, folks who are making things, but um, we need someone who actually knows how to But why, why news? Why not other stuff? Why, why was news important to you? I mean, it's incredibly important content. It's the soul of any media company that, you know, even if it's not their biggest business, it's, it's one of the most important businesses to, to the identity of, a, of, of, of any great media company. And it's incredibly fun, and it has an ability to have a huge cultural impact. Um, and all of a sudden, our distribution model lended itself to doing news, and so we had this huge opportunity to get into a new content that, kind of content that we all really loved and wanted to do. So Ben, this guy who runs a cat site calls you up and says, let's have lunch. What was the pitch? Um, well, there was a lot of very abstract stuff about six degrees of separation in the social web, and I didn't really understand what he was talking about and <laughs> said no. Yeah. And then th thought it through and came back to him. But I think, you know, ultimately, to me, it was that as a reporter, it was sort of a huge force multiplier not to, you know, not, to, not to match other people's stories, not to constantly be thinking about the bundle and the package and making sure you have sort of, you, that you're telling your, you this imagined single reader everything about the world, but rather just to break news all day, just to focus on exclusives, to focus on if a reporter needs to break off for a few days and just go after something big to do that. To, and, and then also to, to play with form, to, you know, to, the, to, I mean, I think this is no longer a novel idea, but the idea that the sort of reverse pyramid structure where you have like nine nouns in the first sentence and then a second sentence that summarizes the story and then a, and then a paragraph that just tells you a bunch of stuff you already knew and then a random quote. But, but was the like pitch, the, we want to build a giant news site or, or we, want, we have all this stuff and we want you to layer on top of that some, some stuff that gives us a little more because the uh, credence, right? No, I, think, a, I mean, Jonah's all, I mean, I think, I'm not sure we talked that explicitly about it and I've obviously been, I mean, I did not expect this kind of scale, but I mean, Jonah's ambition was never like really in question. Th th there was a huge opportunity. I mean, for me, at first, it was just a big opportunity to really go after the 2012 presidential election very, very hard. 
and we'll talk about that in a minute too, but there's a perception, I think, in this audience and outside that, that the stuff you do is, is very cool and, and worthwhile and interesting and serious and, and good, um, but it's not really what drives BuzzFeed, that what drives BuzzFeed are still cat stories or listicles or, or things that are effervescent, and, and you are sort of been brought on to sort of give the thing more gravitas and to make it a better sale to advertisers. Do you, do you feel that perception outside? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly feel that perception outside. I mean, I think we, we've from the start invested very heavily well first of all in two things in news and what we call buzz and from the start really invested very heavily in in you know in making lists and 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 quizzes and and really what that is really about is experimenting with form and a lot of those forms have you know are now really how we tell how we tell breaking news stories but um and now the third a third arm is buzzfeed life which has been huge for us which is lifestyle media which is you know um style and health and sex and food and things like that um but no, I mean I think internal in the, in our internal culture they feed off each other and 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 draw a lot of and really draw a lot of energy from one another and there's, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity overlap. Yeah, it also de overlap. depends on the time, right? So so you know the, the Boston bombings happens and immediately all of the most popular content on the site is hard news. Um, then there's slow news week, and the most popular content is lists or quizzes or entertainment or fun content. How does that break down in the aggregate? So what percent of the traffic is coming to sort of lifestyle or lighter news or listicles versus um, I think it, 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 It's very similar to what you see kind of through the history of media, which is the most popular things are pop entertainment content, um, and the often the most important things are serious news content and when there's huge news breaking it becomes the biggest thing but most of the time it's not the biggest thing so so periodically several times now you guys have, have gawker loves to write about this but people pay a lot of attention to you and and you end up sort of stubbing your toe as you're sort of it looks like you're trying to figure out how to create a new digital journalism model so i think the most recent thing was was you guys took down some posts it turned down. You said you took them down. It, it turned out you took them down at the behest of, of advertisers. I think you said you did it over three times. There's been other incidents where I think you took down, you vanished like 4,000 posts. And I think, Jonah, you said at the time, well, those were things we did sort of before we brought on Ben. Do you guys feel like you've got a sense of sort of how you, how you balance traditional things like advertising and content and, and how you, uh, you feel like you've got a, a newsroom model that's set at this point? I don't. I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't think we've totally figured it out. I mean, and obviously we're learning in public and screwing up from time to time. But I think in some ways we're very traditional. We are very traditional in church and state. And you know, there, there's a creative team that reports up to our business side. That, and I, I do think that's actually a pretty important division to keep. So can you explain, just because it's interesting I think, to me, I think to other people, what what happened with the posts you took down? I think you said you took them down at the behest of, of the advertising side, but it wasn't the way I think most people would think about that. Well, there were there. I mean, I, I really I don't want to get into the weeds, and if you would like to read a nine thousand word interview I don't, on this, I don't. It, it is available on the web. But what we there were the, the the I think what you're talking about is we put out a report really that went back into over the you know really why we had deleted posts really since I started partly because things have been moving fast, and I wanted to be sure I knew before I went out and talked about it to people like you and. And you know, real, some of it really was us learning on the job how to figure out what you do in, you know, in very specific cases and making these rules that I think have grown up over you know hundreds of years in traditional media, but making them. I guess one thing that was go. interesting to me was 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 one of the issues was that I think there was a conflict between something a writer had written and something on the ad, someone on 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 the ad side had created because you guys 
create content for your advertisers. You're basically an ad agency. You know, I mean, you for, be a traditional for, for, the, for the most part, all advertisers understand the separation of church and state, and sometimes they, you know, the big companies have communications departments, and that's how they engage. They don't use their, their ad buyers as the, their way of, of engaging. For most part, people, uh, you know, understand that. Um, there are occasions where, where advertisers put pressure. There's occasions where a subject, particularly a wealthy or powerful subject, puts pressure and you know, threatens to sue even though they don't really have grounds to sue because they know that it's very expensive to defend a case even if you're right. Um, you know, various, uh, you know, uh, actually the most common one is some, someone who is a friend of someone at the company right. and says don't do this story or whatever. Um, and what you need to do to build a great news organization over the, the long term is be able to resist those pressures. But in this case, those pressures. at least one of the issues think, was that you guys were creating your own advertising. Yeah, this, was, this, was, this was a case we, I think we came across like, probably a year and a half ago that was something I'd never considered before, which was that an editor had taken images from an ad post and put them into editorial content and was, and was writing about, not, not about, the, I mean, the company, the advertiser right. is obviously fair game. Um, an advertisement that is news is obviously, that is itself news is obviously fair game. How you navigate the line in, you know, in, in, I don't know, I guess my impulse is to tell editors not to play games with, with the wall. Right. But, but I guess I'm just trying to get to the, the, the business model, right? I'm just wondering if it causes more strain because you've got a big team. How many people make, make content for advertisers at BuzzFeed? Uh, probably like 70 people. You've got like a big that. team that makes stuff like that. You've got a big team that makes editorial. Traditionally at, you know, at the New York Times, or at least up until now, those guys weren't making advertising, right? Someone was bringing that to them. So does that make it more fraught overall, or do you think you've, you've settled that? I don't think so. I think I get screaming calls from people at probably the rate that Jill Abramson or Dean Bacay got screaming calls from people, which is pretty regularly. A lot of screaming but, at the uh, New York Times. You, you gotta listen. <laughs> um, can we talk a bit about, about, about your business model? You, you make ads that, again, run, well, you make ads that are content. This was a novel idea a few years ago. Now everyone is doing it. You seem to be doing it better than everybody else. Um, there's a question about how you scale that business um, because you guys have to make your own advertising. Yeah. Um, and again, traditionally, I think people who invest in a tech company like the idea that you do something once and it multiplies many times. You guys have to keep making new content. Have, do you think you're going to be able to sort of jump over that hurdle at some point and, and, and it scales more like a traditional tech business or is this always going to be you hiring more people to make more ads? Uh, we're, not, we're not like um, a traditional tech business. We're not in a marketplace, or we're not something where, where we just write code and everyone else does all the work. We actually have lots of creative people who come up with ideas and make things, and then they have technology that allows them to reach a much bigger audience and have more leverage than their peer at another organization. So if you work at BuzzFeed in editorial, or if you work in BuzzFeed on the branded side, um, the work you do is seen by more people. It spreads internationally more fluidly because we've expanded so much internationally. It spreads across different platforms more, more easily because we've figured out how to adapt content from our own site to video to um, other social media uh, formats. Um, and we have a much closer connection with our audience because we have data about what people share and how they engage with our content. So that also informs the creative process. And so it means that each person who works at BuzzFeed um, has more leverage and can have a bigger impact than... So than you scale by letting, letting everybody around you sort of grow and you, you ride on that coattail? You scale by hiring a lot of people. We have, we have 1,000 people now at BuzzFeed and we're, we're, we're growing, growing quickly, but then giving those people tools so that they can have a bigger impact than they could somewhere else. And so it's not a thing where we're going to have 12 employees and you know, be you know, like Instagram when it's old or something and have this massive scale. Um, but we have 
a cost structure and economics that are vastly superior to traditional media companies. When you look at, you know, we reach more people than any of the cable networks. We reach more people than even, net, you know, if you compare our Comscore numbers to their Nielsen numbers, we reach more people in the U.S. than ABC or a CBS you or You can ask NBC. Les Moonves about that when he comes um, in a minute. And we spend a fraction of what those media companies spend. So if you think of the amount of money it costs for, for Les Moonves to, to reach a massive audience, I hear him laughing in the back, yeah. um, is, is you know, or many orders of magnitude more than it costs us to reach um, you know, an audience of a similar scale. Now, they also make a lot more money per, per, per audience. So the, the, the costs are much higher and the revenue is much higher. Um, what I think we're going to see in the coming years is, is having a better cost structure um, that allows you to reach a really large audience with high quality content because you understand the audience better because you're directly engaged with them is going to um, allow us to move up market and go into other markets where there is better monetization. What's, um, what are other markets with better monetization? So, so as a cross-platform media company, um, television and film are areas that could be initial places where we could You're going to start making TV shows and, and movies? I think that there's, there's ways of using our process for understanding how, uh, what consumers want, what they care about, what they're engaging with. And um, there's ways of using that, that, that data and understanding, not just to adapt our content for Facebook or YouTube, but also for, for traditional media and linear television, things like that as well. So when, when's the first BuzzFeed TV show and where's it going to run? Are you going to get your own network like Vice? Um, I don't, uh, we don't have a plan to, to have, our own, have our own network. We, wa we want to, uh, to build an engine for really R&D for the media industry where we're able to, to create new formats, develop new ways of, of telling stories, understand what consumers, particularly young consumers, want, and then be able to use that to make media that goes across many different platforms. And some of those will monetize really well, but will not give us much data back, and others will give us lots of data and learning. And if you can do all of them, you can, you can um, learn some places and earn other places. But just, just to beat this into the ground, you, so you're sort of making this pitch that says, look, we're going to get smarter and better at, at making this stuff, and then eventually we're going to move up market to TV and, and movies. Um, but that's such a different model than, than, than what you're doing now, right? Right, right? right now you can publish the dress post and figure out who was watching it and looking at it and why once you sell your show to Les Moonves, you lose most of that data, right? He's, he's very limited data. It seems like your story in some ways gets less sexy then. I, I'm, I'm not interested in the end product of television. I don't really watch television. Most of the people or a lot of people who read BuzzFeed don't watch television. Sorry, that Les. Um, but... Um, it's, it's not the end product, it's a process for making media, and that form that it takes could be that you're watching uh, something that looks like a television show, it could be that you're watching things that are eight minutes long or six minutes long or lots of short form content, um, it could be that you're consuming the media on Snapchat or Spotify or Netflix or Amazon Prime or CBS. Um, and so um, we're, we're focused right now on building, on building the machine that allows us to, to um, to learn and to make great content and to give creative people real data feedback. Um, where that's going to be extended is, is, I think, an exciting opportunity for us, but it's not like our dream is to make a TV show or our dream is to, you know, to make a movie. We, we had uh, Evan Spiegel and Snapchat up here yesterday. Um, you guys were supposed to work with them on Discover and then something fell apart at the end. Why didn't you go to Snapchat's Discover platform when they launched? We'd, I mean, we'd love to be on Discover, and, and uh, I think Snapchat is super interesting as a, as a platform, and um, you know, hopefully, we'll, hopefully we'll be on Discover someday. Are you creating stuff for Snapchat, Ben? Yeah, we have, we have teams who are playing around on Snapchat. Is sure. it exper experimental right now? 
I mean, everything we do is experimental. Some of it's pretty large scale, but yeah. Have you had any successful experiments with them? Um, I mean, I think we, you know, it was it was interesting. One of one of the, when we interviewed Obama, actually, one of the, one of the main channels we were getting questions on was was through Snapchat, was it, which was interesting. They so were, it's inbound right now. Oh no, well we were at, I mean, right. going in both directions, but uh, but it was just sort of a, I mean, it's just such a massive service that the, you know you sort of see the opportunities. A lot of interest in weed. Right, because one of the issues with Snapchat, I think, from publishers is there's there's not a lot of data coming from them. They're not telling people this is how things are performing. There aren't links. There's not a lot a lot of analytics. Is that an issue for you? There's some data, and, and I think generally as platforms mature, they share more data with content creators because it allows the content creators to, to make better content. I don't think the data by itself, though, allows people to make great content. Sometimes people just use data to try to game a system or try to find short-term ways of, of driving, driving numbers. Um, and so I think having the right context and the right business relationships and data can, can allow you to create interesting things on, on different platforms. So we also asked Evan about... Uh, diversity, I think we'll ask a bunch of folks. We'll ask you guys. You guys published some diversity numbers about your workforce uh, last fall. Pretty white. Um, this is a good discussion for three white guys to have on, on, on stage. Um, I think about half your staff was women. Um, so how do you feel about the numbers that you have? How do you think they might change over time? Um, I think, you know, I think that it's something that we've been pretty obsessed with, really. I mean, and really seeing, I think, as an opportunity from the start. I mean, I think... Well, why, why, the, why are you obsessed with it? Why is it I think it if you look at the sort of the way media is structured, around, around, you know, both ethnic minorities and LGBT people, you have uh, traditional kind of strong niche publications, and then it's, these are treated as second-tier stories at mainstream publications. And really, it's, when, I'd always covered marriage very aggressively, because I mean, I think for a lot of people of our generation, that isn't a niche story. And so, and there was, and when I was at Politico, there was this guy, Chris Geidner, who was just like beating me on stories quite regularly. So he was one of the first people I hired at BuzzFeed. And then, you know, in 2013, when LGBT, when I think marriage was probably really the biggest story in the country. Gay marriage. Yeah. Um, what was the biggest story in the country? We were really, I think, one of the dominant forces in that story because we were covering it like a central American story, not like this niche LGBT story. But you're talking about and how think, you cover things, not who covers. And things. I think. Well, I think those things are related, not 100%. And I think when, you know, we have also, I think last year we saw an opportunity with, with Hispanic readers in particular and have really across a very broad spectrum invested both in hiring people. I think our staff is somewhere like 9% Hispanic now. Um, and we did publish these numbers because we do want, because I think that is how you get held accountable in public. And the, um, you know, and that meant publishing, doing, you know, having a Selena week where we like, publish tons of fun things, but also covering the hell out of the immigration story. But this sounds like you're saying, stories. I want to cover the story, or I want to expand this market. I'm going to go hire people from that demographic group. Am I getting that right, or is it I mean, I think it's direct? not, I mean, I think that certainly, like, I think people in our business have for at least since, I would think, the 50s or the 60s felt a kind of overarching, appropriate, ethical imperative to hire, diverse, you know, to hire a diverse group of people, and have done more or less nothing about it for 50 years based on that ethical imperative. And... I think we certainly feel that ethical imperative too, but also I think on web publishing in particular, where you're not thinking if you know if you're in a traditional magazine, my reader is this exact person and everything is focused on this person, where you're thinking, wow, we have this huge opportunity to reach a giant diverse audience where each story is going to travel out in a slightly different direction to a different audience. It's crazy not to not to have a diverse staff. And obviously not only black people are going to be obsessed with black culture and and you know, there's not a one-to-one -one overlap. Between what you know, between what you, what who you are, and what you care about, but um, but but at the same time, you know, there's there's some overlap. Do you have internal goals. We want to get to this percent, uh, whatever demographic group. We want to hit this number. 
No, I mean, the, in, the internal goals are wanting to, to meet with diverse candidates and, and wanting to um, be able to tap the broadest possible tool, pool of talent. I mean, when you think about what media was like, you know, 50 years or 100 years ago, there were like newspapers that only Catholics worked at and newspapers that only, you know, that were, you know, were all white men. And when you think about all of the talent that those newspapers, you know, and those publications didn't have access to, um, it was huge, you know, it was a huge liability. And I think we've seen that every investment we make in diversity has had a tremendous effect on our, on our business. It's broadened the perspectives of people who work at the company. It's helped us cover areas with more knowledge in, 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 in some cases. And then in cases where there's people who don't want to write about anything related to their identity, um, just having critical mass in the workplace allows us to recruit people who, who don't want to be the only person in a company who's black or the only person in a company who is from a particular um, background. So having a, having a critical mass of, of, of a diverse range of, of, of people with different backgrounds allows us to recruit better people. Um, Practical and a, economic advantages for you in having a more diverse workforce. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very easy to draw the line when you look at editorial, where you see whole whole areas of coverage that we do being being opened up because we have people who are knowledgeable, um, both from their lived experience and and because of expertise that they learn professionally, um, and and it, and you but you also see it in tech and you all, you know on the on the tech side and you also see it on the business side. So it it's, it definitely has big returns for, for the company is something that I would encourage everyone to, to push hard on. We're going to get to audience questions in, in one second. Um, wanted to ask you where all this goes, though, before, before we get to that. Um, I think a couple years ago, you had a chance to sell this company to Disney. People told you had a handshake deal, and then you thought about it and decided not to. Why didn't you sell this company to Disney? <clears throat> um, I, I never really wanted to sell the company. Um, I think that... Um, um, Bob Iger is a very impressive and persuasive guy, and the company is is a, Disney is an impressive company. So I spent some time talking talking to him. Uh, but I think um, being an independent company feels like the right path for us and allows us to do to do more. And 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 so um, you know I never really wanted to, to to sell the company, and and we're continuing to to chart an independent course. Was there a moment where you said okay, and then and then you and then you backed no. out? No, you never had a, You never actually agreed to do it. Um, so I think last summer you were valued at eight hundred and fifty million dollars. I'm sure you're you're a unicorn by now. Um, at some point you get very expensive for anyone to acquire. So can you imagine this being a standalone public company at some point? Yeah, we're focused. We're we're very focused on building out internationally. We're very focused on building out across multiple different platforms. We're very focused on building out our video business, um, building out BuzzFeed News. Um, that will give us a, a diversification, both of revenue and geographical diversification, and diversification across different kinds of platforms, to, to allow us to, to to build a big independent company with with um, much more predictability and things that would allow us to to, to be a public company or 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 an independent. I'm looking company. forward to your earnings calls. They're going to be fun. <laughs> uh, questions from the audience? If you don't, I have some. Um, as your population gets older, as the world the way it works, do you see a need to attend your audience to the age as it gets older, or do you worry about the younger people who are coming in? Which way do you move? You know, I think we don't spend a lot of time thinking about targeting by age. I mean, I think you know our audience, you know, lives on mobile devices and on these social platforms, and that 
in a very rough way. You know, sometimes is used as sort of a proxy for age. But I think that you know, a lot people of a lot of different demographics care about news and care about what's happening in the world. And I think it's sort of sometimes like a there's this idea that that like the kids want to be kind of spoon-fed news that's chopped up into these very easy to digest little pieces. That's been an idea that people have been trying to do things with again forever. But I think that's I think that's sort of an oversimplification. And there's no BuzzFeed seniors section coming. We have we have a lot of parenting content that does great. So there are, there are apparently parents on, on the internet these days. Of yeah. all ages. Yeah. Here's a parent. You've talked a lot about starting to invest in original content. Uh, and some of the low cost model that complements that has sort of been uh, originally, originally created or also sourced from other sites like Reddit, so on and so forth. Uh, how do you think about sort of originating content from other places? And there's a whole bunch of folks who I think have misread your low-cost model as you know, literally ripping stuff off even from you and just republishing on viral sources. Um, how do you think about that internally? I mean, the main reason that our model is low-cost relative to traditional media is that we don't, we don't have um, the economics of broadcast television or print. So you know, we have reporters, uh, foreign correspondents around the world who are doing original reporting. Um, we have um, uh, about 200, a little over 200 people in Los Angeles to do all original video. So that, that 1.2 billion video views that, that I mentioned is all original video. We don't aggregate video. We don't claim channels like an MCN or, or anything like that. It's all, it's all uh, content we make. Um, and then Buzz Team content is very engaged with the uh, culture of, of the web. And when something is viral, like for example, the dress, some of you may have seen the dress that looked different colors to different people. Uh, our community manager was pinged by the person who took the photo of the dress who had posted it on Tumblr to, to a relatively small audience. And it said, hey, my friends are debating this. Um, what do you think? And she took that, embedded it in, in, into a BuzzFeed post, put a poll so people could vote on what, what you know, the, the, they thought what color it was. Um, and that went to 40 million people, just, just our post, and another 10, 12 million of, of reporting that we did around the dress. So we had reporters covering it. We had um, um, people, you know, entertainment reporters writing about what celebrities were saying about it, science desk writing about um, the science behind it. But this um, is something she, I think she wrote. She said that this took her five minutes to make, right? She took it off a of Tumblr and posted it on your site. Did yeah, it didn't take her. It, it took her a lot of time to cultivate relationships with all these people, uh, you know, on, 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 on Tumblr to be a, and, and for BuzzFeed to build a site where people said, oh, if something has the potential to go big, you should send it to BuzzFeed because... So I think what Hunter was maybe getting at was like, it seems like a lot of folks are saying, well, it's much better to just have someone take posts off of Tumblr or Reddit and publish those in five minutes than to send someone to the Ukraine or cover the 2016 election. I mean, I guess we, we feel like we don't have to choose. And I actually think that there is this idea that making kind of incredibly entertaining, hugely viral lists or quizzes is easier than being like a beat reporter. I mean, like you and I know that our jobs are not like that hard. Like get, you know, getting somebody drunk at that party last night and tell you a secret isn't like an act of they tremendous They showed up drunk. And actually making, you know, making a, uh, you know, and, and, and making, you know, a, you know, making a list of, of jokes you can tell your kids or something like that is, I find at least, is like a pretty, it's pretty hard work. And, and the people, we, and we have, you know, we get, we pick from among like people who are amazing at that and, and you know, it's hard work. Yeah, and there's a reason that things, that, that a messy Reddit thread doesn't go viral sometimes because it isn't, it, it, it's, missing, it's missing things, you know? Um, and there's uh, lots of unpaid people who are, you know, who are work participating in community, in community sites. Having paid people 
who are professionals who understand what's a hoax and what's not a hoax and how internet culture works and what things are happening elsewhere on the web and how to turn that into something that is a original work that builds off of, off of things that are happening elsewhere is a valuable skill and it's actually really hard to and do. And you guys can survive without Reddit. You don't need Reddit to, to fuel the site. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, question there. Hi. I'm curious what you think about social audio and spreading and what your experience with podcasting has been so far. You know, we've had a kind of running argument about this in which we've, I think, flipped which side we're taking at any given moment. Because there's this obvious, I mean, it's, there was a great dig piece about how audio doesn't go viral, just as a rule, that preceded Serial, which I don't know if you would call this individual piece of content going viral, but was obviously this huge phenomenon. Um, but, you know, we've launched just two podcasts so far, Another Round with Heaven and Tracy, and, um, and, which is, and, and one called Internet Explorer. And it is really, I mean, they have, to, surprisingly to me, big audiences, honestly, like they've been doing really well. But also there's an intensity of engagement around, around audio that is really striking. And people will, Heaven and Tracy, you know, headlined some um, women's podcast event in, in New York and like sold out instantly. And there's this sense of like, that there's this real intensity of engagement that is, is in some ways different from a lot of what we do and it's something that we're kind of learning how to deal with. It's pretty exciting. Last question real quick from Amir. Uh, hi, Amir Afradi from The Information. Um, about a year and a half ago at a Facebook holiday event, there was a BuzzFeed reporter uh, there and, and there were a lot of reporters there. We were all asking Facebook about Facebook and uh, the future of social uh, media. The, ba the BuzzFeed reporter asked, you know, you guys just changed your algorithm. You're hurting us. Why are you doing that? Which is a very odd question to, to yeah, hear. Um, which leads me to ask you, do you feel like you guys are uh, over-reliant on these, these platforms? How do you know for sure that platforms like Facebook or Snapchat in the future or Pinterest or wherever uh, are really going to support you and be, be your friend? How do you know that circumstances aren't going to change uh, beyond your control? I mean, I think there are sort of two answers to that. I'll just take the editorial one, which is that you know, we, cover, we cover these platforms and don't consider them our friends. And Jonah, how do you avoid the, a demand media problem? Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think uh, you can't uh, assume that a platform will have your interests at, at heart. You have to assume that if they're smart, they're going to have the user's interest at heart. So if we're making content that Facebook users really love, um, that, should, that should be the goal, not making content that Facebook's algorithm loves, if that makes sense. So, so focusing, focusing on the ult ultimate consumer and who and 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 that's one of the advantages of being on multiple platforms is you see how people behave on different different platforms so if you see something goes huge on Facebook and doesn't spread anywhere else then you say oh maybe this was some quirk in Facebook's algorithm and people didn't really like this it was just shown to too many people but if it also is big on Twitter and it's also big on Pinterest and people are commenting on it and there's lots of engagement you say okay we're probably doing doing a good a good job um, Facebook is massive and I think um, you know Global culture has a Facebook dependency that, that um, just by the scale of, of, of how much information is discovered on Facebook, we're actually, we have a system called Pound that lets us track cross-network sharing, and so we can see how things will, things that blow up on Twitter bleed to Facebook and start getting shared to, to, to Facebook because so many more people are Facebook users than Twitter users that when something is discovered on Twitter, people will share it to Facebook so their friends who aren't on Twitter can see it. So there's a, there's a lot of... Um, of, of complicated dynamics of how media spreads across these platforms, and you just have to be honest with yourself and 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 try to measure what are actual people doing with the content. When we post something, are they posting recipes? When we post a recipe, are they posting examples of them actually cooking the food? Because that's a powerful metric, much more than traffic. Um, or when we break a news story, 
Uh, is it resulting in laws being changed or congressional hearings or impact that way? Um, so we always try to look at what are we creating? Does it have an impact on the, on the actual lives of the audience? And does it have an impact on the world beyond that? And, and, and if it does, um, it, you know, it's going to be in the interest of all of the social platforms to, to promote content like that because it'll be good for their users and good for their business also. Got it. Thanks, guys.